So good evening, everybody. How's, how's the volume? Comfortable? Okay. So the topic of tonight's talk is compassion. And compassion is so central to what we're doing here and to this path that tonight I'll really just be offering some reflections. It's by no means exhaustive in a, in a 45-minute talk. After I prepared for the talk this afternoon, I decided to take a walk. I'd been in my room most of the afternoon and was ready to just get outside. And as I was going down the hill, one of our dear managers, Quilly, came by in her golf cart, and I stopped in and went down the hill with Quilly and was just talking with her. And she told me that, um, that I should come down to the site of the new community hall. You we're all aware of the huge uh, building that's happening in the lower part of Spirit Rock. And so we got there just as this uh, beautiful ritual was coming to a close. And many of you were probably up here on Saturday for the blessing of the land and of the building. And the last of these rocks and pieces of paper with blessings on them were being put into the ground by the staff. And we came in just at the tail end of that and got to write our little blessings on a piece of paper and put the rocks with our blessings on it down into the ground. And it kind of caught me by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. I was just expecting a walk. And I was really just quite struck by the power of having my feet and my body on that land because I've been seeing pictures of it and have walked by the construction for so many months, but I haven't actually walked on the land where the building will be. And it was, um, it was moving in a way I just hadn't expected. And I think that some of what was so moving to me was the collective power of the intention that was going into this unfolding. You know, as I was, as I was um, watching the rocks be put in with the blessings on them, I just was reflecting upon what a great act of compassion this building is that it's taken hundreds and thousands of people with a vision who have contributed, who on some level, you know, we call it the new community hall for Spirit Rock, that'll have all these programs and make what we do be more accessible to more people. But when we kind of touch into the kernel of what it's all really about, it's about compassion. It's about caring for the suffering of beings and the understanding, the wisdom that there's a way to live with more freedom and happiness and less suffering. And the generosity, too. You know, because, because of the compassion, this natural outpouring of generosity that's come forth that is really making that possible. And I really, it, it gave me a certain perspective to what we're really doing here. And it made me remember that we are really, in a certain sense, just in this field of merit, in this field of uh, blessings and goodness that have come forth. The same process happened in its own way for this hall. Um, so in a certain sense, our practice rests upon the shoulders of all of these beings who have cared enough and had compassion for what we are here doing during this retreat.
These are some words that are inscribed on the tomb of the great, the great Persian poet Rumi. These are his words. You can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have permission to do so, and it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. So he speaks to this hidden suffering, the suffering of holding back from our own suffering. And I think that we all know a lot about, about this process of holding back from the suffering, holding back from the fear with the idea that somehow the tension in our bodies, the tension in our minds and our hearts will protect us somehow. And there are junctures where that can be so, but it's certainly not true for the whole entirety of our lives. When Anna spoke last night about intimacy with our experience, really touching and contacting and living fully in the kind of intimacy that is the expression of awakening, compassion is a particular flavor of this kind of intimacy. Compassion is the natural response of the awakened heart when, when it encounters suffering. Maybe you found in the yoga just um, how, how in our bodies we can be living with so much tension we don't even know it's there. You found that? You, know, you, you go into a, a pose and you might not even have realized how much more room there could be <laughs> between your shoulders and your neck or how much more space there could be in the experience of breathing, how much more sensation is available to you as things begin to soften. And so this, this process that we're in together, it's very much like a melting. It's like an ice, ice cube in our hearts and in our bodies that's just melting with these moments and moments of warm and caring awareness. So for each of us, the kind of the, the paradox and the gift is that right there in the places where we find ourselves in some degree of tension or in some degree of, of suffering, right there is our gateway to awaken this beautiful quality of compassion. Suffering is actually the proximate cause for compassion to arise. So as long as we spend our lives running the other way, thinking, no, 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 I'm really fine not me, the suffering is just out there. We're not going to become intimate with our experience in a way that allows the heart to really flower. And we each have our own story of what this looks like. It's part of the human experience. For some of you on this retreat, you may be really aware of the, of the pain in the body and what happens in the mind when the body has the experience of discomfort. And for some of you, I know that you're working with judging mind and your ideas about being a good or a bad meditator. And for many in the room, there's, there's fear and there's loss, all of these different aspects of the human condition. And I want to be really clear that, that if you're not in a place right now where you feel like you're in a lot of suffering, you don't have to go looking for it. It's okay. You may be in some calm tonight or in a place of um, joy or peace. And if that's true, just allow it. That will, 
continue to support the mind in a, in a way that allows insight to arise and the heart to open. So we don't have to go hunting it down or we don't have to be working so hard to, to um, know the experience of compassion because it's really right here inside each of us already. So this word compassion, you know, we translate it in, in the Buddhist tradition as the heart that quivers when it encounters suffering. And I really love that because it's, it's, I feel it in my body. You know, it's not some idea. It's an actual response. It implies like relationship. The heart that quivers when it encounters suffering. There's a, there's a resonance there. It means that we are in relationship with, we are feeling one another. We are feeling our surroundings and our environment. We're, we're not separate from what's going on. And we are so deeply wired from, for, the, for this from the moment we are born, this kind of resonance. Lately, you've probably heard about mirror neurons in the scientific world. We have these mirror neurons where our, our brains will begin, I'm not a brain scientist, so I don't know all the specifics of it, but where, where our brains will actually begin responding in a way that is um, according to what's happening with the person or with the people that we're around. So we're, we're wired together in this kind of a way. And compassion, compassion involves our capacity for deep attunement and deep sensitivity. It's actually a strength. I think sometimes our sensitivity can feel like it's going to be overwhelming or too much, and I'll say more about that. But compassion allows for this kind of sensitivity that is um, responsive and alive and has great capacity to feel, to be with. So in practicing turning toward our own suffering, turning toward the, the suffering of beings, we're, we're trained to notice, I think, a lot of what we've been trained out of noticing. And we come here and we start noticing um, the space between our breaths, the, the moments between the arising of thoughts. We might notice the quiet and the stillness. And we start noticing the sameness. You know, we're, we're, we're so wired to notice what's different. This is you and this is me. And yet there's all of this um, similarity in the human experience that we start feeling here. Not just the human experience, but the experience of all of the life, the plants and animals that are here with us as well. So I often think of, of compassion. It, it has many different expressions. Often it's a, just a really exquisite kind of tenderness, great tenderness. And sometimes compassion is fierce and strong and looks like really having our voice and speaking up. Many, many different flavors. This is a, came from part of an email that someone shared 
with me after their first retreat. This was some years ago. This person um, is not from here, and they said I could share this. But I loved this paragraph in this email, and maybe you can relate. She wrote that the practice is so much more than words, more like fundamental shifts in how I relate to the world. Like I can now easily do breath meditation because I don't panic that if I stop paying attention to my breath, my breath will stop. I don't have to be in control of it. And I can actually feel in my body the hard rock of fear near my heart and the suffering it causes in my back from hunching over to protect it for so many years. I might have actually changed my posture. And there's a strong sense of power rather than inadequacy. And when the inadequacy feelings come up, they're met with a deep resounding response from the collective being of the earth, from the mother of all Buddhas. And she goes on. But you may be able to relate to this process that happens, this process of softening, of allowing, as we become more and more intimate with the moments of our lives. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not an easy practice in many ways, is it? It's, it's um, simple, but it's not so easy. And if this is your first retreat, you may have come, you know, everything on the catalogs from Spirit Rock, it just looks so peaceful, so calm, like you're getting a little vacation in Marin. <laughs> and then we come here, and there's so much more that's happening. And um, it takes so much compassion to really be able to sit with ourselves. It takes so much compassion to do meditation, to, to um, show up in this way. It takes so much compassion, and it also takes a lot of wisdom. So there's a way that none of you would be here without a lot of compassion and understanding already at work. You know, you're here on some level because you intuit, you know, or you trust, perhaps you trust very deeply that more freedom, that freedom is possible. You know, that's what brings us here. We sense that on some level. Um, and we care about our own well-being and the well-being of the world enough to put in our time and to do what it really takes to open our hearts, to free our minds. And as the journey continues, the compassion only deepens. It doesn't continue without this, this um, quality of heart. Hafiz, the, the great poet, wrote, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to the world all of its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. The encouragement of light against its being. And so the encouragement of light, that, that's something we might think of compassion as being that. This kind of softening that allows what's been held to begin to have these big, tight balls of yarn in our bodies and mind begin to unravel and become something workable, something that we can understand. 
And it's really this light that lives inside of us, the, the light of awareness, the light of kind-hearted awareness. This long process of, of bringing this curiosity and awareness to more and more moments of our experience to really touch what's right here, wisdom grows. We start to see so much more. came across this quote on Facebook a few days ago. Because we're kind of like, I think it was Anna who said we're like carrots. We're, we are like carrots in the ground. There's more happening than what we can see. We're like seeds too. We're like seeds. You don't always realize what's happening with a seed until, until the flower is apparent. Cynthia Oselli writes, For a seed to achieve its greatest expression... It must come completely undone. The shell cracks, its insides come out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like complete destruction. So the process of of tenderizing, of growth, things get messy. They're supposed to. And as I'm speaking about compassion, I just want to name, often we, we hear a teaching on compassion and there's this idea that well, we start beating ourselves up basically for not being compassionate enough. And we can kind of turn the teaching back against ourselves. And so just, just be aware of that, that place that, that we'll go into thinking that we need to take compassion on as the next project to work on and to improve on. It's not really something we get. It's more that things fall away and compassion is what's left. So if you're finding yourself feeling like, oh my gosh, I got to get more compassionate, right there is some suffering. Right there, we can begin to hold that tendency too in the heart of compassion. And often we think so much about um, developing compassion, becoming compassionate, which can be wholesome and can be beautiful, Part of how we know this quality is by receiving it. It's by being really present when we are the recipients of compassion and to recognize the way that this is at work in our lives. Even if you had the crappiest childhood ever, somewhere along the line, somebody fed you. Somewhere along the line, somebody gave you clothes. Somebody held you sometime or you wouldn't be here right now. And we wouldn't be here if, if it wasn't for the great compassion and empathy of the Buddha. You know, after the Buddha came to full awakening, he really wasn't sure if he wanted to teach. And if I put myself in his shoes, I could see why. You know, if you have this amazing insight, incredible clarity, you're the only one. I mean, it's quite a task to do what he did and break down these teachings into something that, that, um, that we can get our hands around, that we can work with, that we can understand four of this and eight of that and three of these. And so the Buddha chose to teach because he, he really looked out on the universe and he saw the suffering of beings. 
And he chose to teach because out of his care, really, his, his care and his empathy for what sentient beings go through. And it's really quite striking how these practices have endured. And we're sitting here today talking about it 2,600 years later because of this man's decision to act from empathy and from compassion. We are recipients of that quite directly. And not just the Buddha, but the thousands and millions of people who, who have practiced the Dharma and kept the Dharma alive through their consciousness, through how they, how they show up in their lives. So it inspires me to think, to really think of the implication of this from the Buddha. And if you're having a hard time feeling compassion, let yourself rest in this lineage that's here. Whether or not you identify as a Buddhist, there's a, there's a lineage of beings who have kept these, these teachings and practices alive. And we're all part of that in a very, in a very human way. I think about what it would be like if we thought how our actions would be impacting folks in 2,500 years. Can you imagine how different it would be, the world that we lived in, even if we were thinking from, you know, seven generations from now? Our, our decisions, our societies would look different. When the Buddha was asked, would it be true to say that part of our training is for the development of love and compassion? He had an interesting answer, and he said, no, it wouldn't be true to say that part of our training is for the development of love and compassion. It would be true to say that the whole of our training is for the development of love and compassion. The whole of our training so if you want to look to how your practice is going, perhaps you don't look to insight. Perhaps you look to how compassionately you're showing up in the world and how compassionately you're meeting the moments of your own experience because it really includes ourselves. And these teachings, compassion really, it's... it's um, there's an there's a there's a there's an action in it. It's the feeling of suffering with others, but it's also a an impulse to act. There's a there's a movement of the heart. There's the resonating, and there's the movement of the heart. So these teachings, when they arose in India, again twenty six hundred years ago, they they really arose as a spiritual force against so much of what was going on socially at the time, against the caste system, against degrading rites and rituals, and these, the, the teachings and what they advocated really was grounded in equality, which was not what was being practiced at that time. is a story I have never been able to find uh, who wrote it but this is a story um, I think it's a true story 
and it's it's titled this is what true love is all about and i th- i think of compassion as a form of love as is one of the many flavors of a loving heart it was a busy morning about 8:30 a.m. when an elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have his stitches removed from his thumb he stated that he was in a hurry because he had an appointment at 9 a.m. I took his vital signs and I had him take a seat, knowing it would be more than an hour before someone would be able to see him. I saw him look at his watch and decided, because I wasn't busy with another patient, I would evaluate his wound. On the exam, it was well healed, so I talked to one of the doctors and got the needed supplies to remove his sutures and dress his wound. While taking care of his wound, we began to engage in a conversation. I asked him if he had another appointment that morning because he was in such a hurry. And the gentleman told me no, that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. I then inquired as to her health and he told me that she'd been there for a while and that she had Alzheimer's disease. As we talked, I asked if she would be upset if he was a little bit late. And he replied that she no longer knew who he was, that she hadn't recognized him in 5 years now. I was surprised and I asked him, "And you still go every morning even though she doesn't know who you are?" He smiled as he patted my hand and said, "She doesn't know me, but I still know who she is." I had to hold back tears as he left. I had goosebumps on my arm and I thought, "This is the kind of love I want in my life." It's a beautiful kind of compassion. A beautiful kind of everyday pretty unusual I would say but just everyday compassion and true compassion it's um it's not overwhelmed True compassion is something that is sustainable. As I'm talking to you, I'm aware of Kuan Yin. The figurine of Kuan Yin is right down the aisle. She's at the back of the room. It's like she's been sitting behind us the whole time we've been practicing here together. And you know, as I as I look at her, she's she's really grounded. She looks this this physical representation of the embodiment of compassion she's she's connected and she's stable and her eyes are open she's she's in the world she's with us she's not pulling out her hair with a huge to-do list you know and i think that one of the um real barriers to developing compassion for us is that we're we're afraid it'll overwhelm us we're afraid to open to the suffering because we are afraid that we will become the suffering and then it paralyzes us and then we become ineffective whether that's opening to our own experience of of um perhaps attention in the heart or or reading the news i mean how many of you decide not to take in as much media because it's so impactful to be aware of all that's going on compassion and wisdom have to go together for either one to really be complete and be whole 
We often talk about this path as being like a great bird with two, two wings. One wing being wisdom and one wing being compassion and that they really need to be uh, developed in equal measure for the bird to take flight. And in our lives and in our practice, we need to be developing compassion and wisdom together. They're two sides of the same coin. And, and wisdom teaches us um, to understand what gives rise to things being the way that they are. Wisdom helps us to know that no matter how much we wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And right action, action that actually can make a difference in our lives, in our hearts, in the world, comes from this great seeing of wisdom. It's our it's our Vipassana practice, our mindfulness practice that gives us the kind of spaciousness, the great spaciousness that we must have to truly touch suffering. Without the spaciousness, we're just identified and there's a big agenda of trying to make things different that tends to lean into the near enemy of compassion, which is pity, which is that I'm, I'm sorry this is happening, but I'm, I'm kind of glad it's not happening to me and it's happening to you instead. You know, pity, that's a feeling of, actually, it's based in separation and um, comparing mind more than connection. So compassion has to be sustainable. Sometimes in our own practice, this looks like backing off. This looks like saying, oh, this is, this is enough. I'm going to settle back. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to feel the sun on my face. I'm going to go back into Shavasana compassion that that includes us that includes our own balance as part of its expression sometimes we have the experience of of what i call throwing compassion at it have you ever had that where um I'm thinking of someone in my life who I, I used to just feel really irritated when I was around them. And I could see that they were suffering. And I could see that I was really suffering. <laughs> but rather than, um, there was a time that I, I didn't realize how much I was suffering around it. And I, I, I didn't see the level of my own reactivity that was at work. And I was focusing on, on this person's suffering. And so I would do all this compassion practice, you know. May you be free from suffering. <laughs> I care about your suffering. Oh, you know, just, just kind of like that. And there was a sense of, I, I was kind of throwing compassion at it, but what was really going on was a huge web of aversion toward this person and toward, toward really my own experience. And so we just want to kind of look at um, really noticing the suffering. You know, so if there's reactivity in the mind, how is it to just notice, oh, there's aversion in the mind, there's judgment, and just to, to recognize and wake up, oh, right here, I'm suffering, right here. Because we can't practice it unless we recognize suffering. We, we have to recognize the suffering to open to the fullness of compassion that's possible for us. So you just kind of want to notice in when, when the focus becomes compassion out here and we've lost connection with what's going on in here. So it all just starts with this 
willingness to, to feel what we're going through. Anne spoke about, when she talked about Vedna, she spoke about the deeper satisfaction that comes with being present with something that's unpleasant. It, it might even change. It might even become satisfying. So it starts with being willing to feel what we're going through and being willing to have a compassionate relationship with even the, the places inside of ourselves that, we, that we've completely rejected, that we feel aren't worthy of existing, aren't worthy of love, beginning to have compassion for all of these difficult thoughts that come, memories that come, identities that arise, impulses. And as we, as we do this over and over again, we, we start to find what Pema Chodron calls the soft spot. Maybe some of you can relate to feeling this kind of soft spot that's available, this kind of um, more tender Sometimes it can even feel a little shaky place that's available, but it feels like a larger alternative than going after all the arisings and holding that as as who we are. And when we feel the soft spot in our hearts, and maybe you even feel it as I'm talking about it a little bit, or maybe you felt that when I shared that last story about the man whose wife had Alzheimer's. You know, when we, when we are in touch with this and we are encountering another, it's like we are able to actually see one another as human beings, as sentient beings. We, we become more real to one another. So we've talked a lot about suffering. I don't, I don't want to get too into suffering, but I want to say a little bit because when we understand suffering, we understand the end of suffering. And, you know, you might, you might consider living with a, a vow in your life. You know, may the, may the suffering that is here, may, may we use it to awaken compassion. It's, it's really powerful. That was actually how my Dharma path started. I was so fortunate to um, start practicing the Dharma when I was 20 years old and I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was living there and I was going to massage school. And I always kind of felt like, like I knew there was another way, but I didn't know how. And I wasn't finding it in books and I wasn't finding it in the people that I was around. And we took this class that was about... um, really compassionate presence. And it, it had never occurred to me, I remember the moment that it happened when it occurred to me that, that, um, that there was another option other than running the other way from my suffering. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. All of you sitting here are, are knowing this and practicing this. But it's, it's like that truth lands deeper and deeper and deeper in our being. And it really shifted the whole course of my life when I began to really see that the, that the suffering in my heart could be used to awaken compassion. Life started having so much more of a feeling of, of purpose and of empowerment. So there's three kinds of suffering that the Buddha taught. The first is what we call dukkha dukkha, and it's just the suffering of being human, of living in a body, living with a human mind. These bodies, we, we can never have too much care 
for the human body. Compassion is always the answer when we're talking about our bodies. I mean, we know that so much happens in the course of having a body. These bodies are going to get sick. All of our bodies will die at some point. All of our bodies are aging day by day. And with a body, we have a mind that goes through difficult emotions. We've all felt sadness and anxiety, you know, all of these um, difficult emotions. It's just part of, it's not all of the human experience. It's certainly not all of the human experience. It's a part of the human experience. And the second kind of suffering, the parinama dukkha, is just the suffering of impermanence that Anna talked about last night, the suffering of change. It'd be interesting to notice how many times do you see this at work in the course of a 45-minute meditation? You know, how many times do you find yourself wishing that your meditation was like it had been maybe in the morning? <laughs> wishing you could go back to that place where your body didn't hurt? Wishing that something that has changed in your life hadn't changed in your life? Or wishing that something that was true in your life would please, please, please change now? You know, it's, it's this... Um, it's not that the actual change itself causes our suffering, but our really, really deep habit to hold on does. So this suffering when when we are integrating um, the process of letting go. And the third, the third kind of suffering, sankara dukkha, is is called the suffering of conditionality, and this is really a subtler suffering that's at work. This is really the suffering that comes from wanting to be in control of our lives and not being completely in control of our lives. You know, we can, we can make good choices. We can do our practice. We can cultivate wholesome intentions. But so much is going on all of the time that isn't even up to us, isn't it? Sankara means, means formation. Sankara is like a, like a programming. And there's all sorts of programmings at work. We have programmings in our bodies. Have you discovered programmings in your bodies this week? Ways that you've become accustomed to holding your body that may have been there for months or years or decades? And we know that we have programmings in the ways that we speak. And we have all sorts of programs running in our mind that can help us to be functional but keep us from a deeper experience of truth. And when we, when we look directly, we begin to see that the moments of our lives are made up of these processes rolling along over and over and over again, conditions rolling along, even coming to be here, even a moment of mindfulness that comes from different causes and conditions. And often we feel that, you know, if we could just be more loving or be more forgiving or practice more or better, we wouldn't suffer. And we forget that there's a much, much larger process that's at work. And it's so important to see at this because this process actually connects us with all of life. We are part of this huge, vast web of unfolding Nothing is happening in a vacuum. 
Nothing is happening that doesn't depend on anything else, on everything else, rather. And so the process of of mindfulness, the process of mindful awareness, it opens the container. It gives us a larger container that allows these formations and these programmings to be here. It allows them to surface. It allows them to metabolize. And in time, as we develop a steadiness of presence, a steadiness of mind, we are able to see beyond this programming and not through it. So the programming is probably still there. It's probably running, but it doesn't define us. We know something more than the programming as well. So it's really cause for compassion when we consider this um, predicament of being human, how deeply we want to be free, how deeply we want to be happy, how we know that this is possible. We, we experience it many times in moments of calm or clear seeing or joy or connection. Stephen Levine puts it like this. He puts it quite beautifully, actually. Because when, actually I'm going to come back to Stephen Levine, I want to say a little bit more. When we, when we start to see the causes and conditions that bring about our suffering at work, it, it, um, it's crazy to think that somehow that's not a part of our life at all. It's crazy to think that somehow, you know, we're just going to transcend it like that. And compassion becomes very relevant right there when we see the suffering of the human condition. And I don't say this in a, in a way to become downtrodden or depressed, but it, it actually becomes like a, an inspiration and a fire in us to wake up, to practice compassion. And it's, it's counter, it is so deeply counter to what our culture teaches us. I don't know about you, but I know I grew up being conditioned to certainly not show that I was suffering. You know, the answer, our standard American answer to how are you is fine. You know, even if you're not fine, how are you? Fine. We, we, we grow up in that way. And um, suffering has gotten such a bad name in our society that we're actually caught in, in uh, what Rumi was writing about. We're caught in the suffering that comes from holding back from the experience of pain. We're caught in the suffering that comes from holding back from the experience of discomfort. And that becomes the kind of tension that we live with. And so it's a lot to begin. It takes a lot of trust to begin, and it takes a great deal of compassion to begin opening in this way and discover that there is a capacity of heart, there's a capacity of awareness that lives inside each of us that can know what's happening but not be bound by it, not be caught in it. It's a magnificent thing. It's, a, it's this great mystery and wonder of how it is to be human. So we've so lifted up that, that I can do this, I can be this, that we've forgotten that we are part of the whole. We've forgotten all the causes and conditions that give rise so that success is not our ability to control outcomes. You know, that puts so much pressure and misunderstanding on one human life. 
So Stephen Levine speaks of it like this. And again, he uses the word love. We could also use compassion. Compassion is a form of love. He says, what I mean by love is not an emotion. It's a state of being. True love has no object. Many speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and no other. In any one or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. It's not a dualistic emotion. It's a sense of oneness with all that is. The experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness into the universal. It's a feeling of unity. You don't love another, you are another. There is no fear because there is no separation. So that's the place. There is no fear because there is no separation. That's the place where the, the deepest expression of compassion really really arises from compassion with wisdom. That when the mind is not overcome with greed and hatred and delusion, compassion is the natural response. Compassion and wisdom is really, really all that's left. Uh, it's, it's a heart that is ceaselessly responsive. This is a story that I'll um, close with. I love this book, Tattoos on the Heart. It's by a man named Gregory Boyle. And he lives in L.A. and he's a Jesuit priest. And he's the founder of an organization called Homeboy Industries. And Homeboy Industries has done, it's a gang intervention program. And it's done incredible work in, um, in L.A. And he has done incredible work working with gang members, working with people who have really, really rough and tough histories and helping them find work, helping them get back on their feet, and maybe most importantly, helping them to be able to be in the same room together. And this book is filled with beautiful stories about his work. And he's writing in his chapter on compassion about a series of speaking gigs that he was on. And he brought two homies who were rivals Memo and Miguel that were going to help him do it. And they'd been in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. And they were um, traveling from Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama to another town called Pritchard, Alabama. He says, we take two hours to drive and walk around in what I think is about the poorest place I've ever seen in the United States. Hovels and burned-out shacks and lots of people living in what people ought not to live in. Memo and Miguel are positively bug-eyed as they walk around, meet people, and see a kind of poverty quite different than the one they know. We return to the house where we're staying and have half an hour to pack before leaving for the airport and our return trip home. We all dispatch to our own rooms and I throw my suitcase together. I look up. And Memo, this big guy, this big homie, is standing in my doorway and he's crying. He's a very big man. He'd been a shock caller for his barrio, his neighborhood, 
and it has done things in and out of prison for which he feels great shame, harm as harm. The depth of his core wound is quite something to behold. Torture, unrivaled betrayal, chilling abandonment. There's little terror of which Memo would be unfamiliar. He's weeping as he stands in my doorway, and I ask him what's happening. That visit to Pritchard, the town Pritchard, he says, I don't know it got to me. It got inside of me, I mean, and he's crying a great deal here. How do we let people live like this? He pauses, and then he says, gee, I don't know what's happening to me, but it's big. It's like for the first time in my life, I feel. I don't know what's the word. I feel compassion for what other people suffer. And Gregory Boyle writes, outcast, victim and victimizer, sheep without a shepherd. Memo finds his core wound and joins it to the Pritchard core wound. In trails, involving the bowels, the deepest place in Memo finds solidarity in the starkest wounds of others. Compassion is God. The pain of others having a purchase on his life. Memo would return many times with other homies to Pritchard. A beloved community of equals has been fostered and forged there, and the roofs just keep getting ripped off. Soon enough, there won't be anyone left outside. This beautiful story of how no matter what we experience, you know, compassion's there, we can always open to it, and and the door opens inwardly. The door opens inwardly. The door opens by sitting and softening in the belly and turning toward your experience and allowing the, the spaciousness of the mind that is aware, that is mindful, to hold it. So... Let's just take a moment of quiet together. May all beings live with compassion and the causes of compassion. And may we use all that arises in our own lives toward our own awakening, for our own awakening. And may we rest in the great heart of compassion. Thanks for your attention tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate